This broadcast is coming to you from unceded Gadigal land. I'd like to pay my respects to Gadigal elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to the communities of Redfern and Waterloo. Gadigal people have been sharing stories and songs on this land since the beginning of time. This always was and always will be Aboriginal land. Record Collections and Recollections. Out of the Box with Mia Hull on FBI Radio. Hey, Mia Hull here on the podcast, streaming online or live on your radio from 12 to 1pm. This is Out of the Box. Every Thursday, I sit down with one person and look at their record collection and the stories that come with it. This week, I want to pull back the curtain a little bit to tell you about how we found today's guest. It began when the executive producer of this show, Glenn Walter, was volunteering at the FBI radio front desk and an interesting email fell into his lap. It came from the manager of a band and it contained a bit of background information about the band, plus a video clip of a naked man running through the street smoking a cigarette. (laughs) The email also included this sentence. I'd love to tell you more, as well as how my being a rabbi's daughter from Wisconsin led me to manage a French alternative psych rock band. A few email exchanges and a phone call later, and here we are on Out of the Box with Yehudas Milstein to tell that story and to talk about the things that have happened in between and to play the songs that have soundtracked the big moments. Yehudas joins me now from Brussels. Thanks so much for jumping on the show and thanks for staying up in the middle of the night to tell us this story, Yehudas. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you for having me. I'm super excited, a little nervous, but more excited. Awesome. (laughs) I, I want to dive straight into religion, if that's okay with you, because I feel like it's a pretty remarkable backdrop for the rest of your life. Tell me about the community that you grew up in. I think the first thing that comes to mind is it's all over the world. I have people from my community, you know, I, I just last Friday night, I here in Brussels, I was at someone's house who who's part of the community. Um, it's warm, it's kind, it's welcoming, it's a bit different and unknown to people who haven't been into it. It could be a bit scary and the rules don't make sense, but I get them and I understand them. So parts of me love it and parts of me don't want to be a part of it for many reasons. The community that we're referring to is an Orthodox Jewish community. For someone who might not be familiar with what that looks like in practice, can you describe your experience of growing up in that? Honestly, the first thought that comes to mind is a lot of rules. A lot of rules and all those rules they like make our lives go there's rules for you know how to dress what to eat who to talk to what to be in life um, I mean those rules also create many beautiful moments um, like for example Friday night dinners with the family yeah it's something we have to do but it's something that we also it brings so much joy to everybody and it brings so many people together and it's something that's I don't know. I, I, I think it's if you grow up with it every week, it's hard to forget about it or to say no to. There's Judaism, which is, has many, many, many different layers. And within Judaism, there are many different like pods of people. Some people who focus more on, um, like fo- they focus on different rules. They come from different areas of the world, you know, from Eastern Europe, from Morocco. And so they have different customs and they have different things that they value. So. For my father, he came from Russia, 
and he joined a community called the Chabad community or the Lubavitch community. And the Lubavitch community had believed that uh, they were led by a rabbi in New York, the Lubavitch Rebbe. And he was a really wonderful man, really wise, very many, many thousands and thousands of people saw him and spoke to him and got advice from him. And what was different about my dad was that in 1984, when he passed away, most people said, okay, it's time to move on. You know, we are going to figure out how to live our lives without him. And my father said, nope, he's still around, he's still alive, and not only is he still alive, but he's actually God. And, and he had his own like, text-based proofs for why that was true. But that belief um, in this you know, rabbi being a god caused him to create his own teeny, 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 tiny community in Milwaukee. And that community is the one that I grew up in. Let's talk about that belief in a human god or a human idol. Where does that fit into Judaism? Um, yeah, it actually goes against the very foundations of Judaism. Like it's the first commandment is to believe in one God and a human can't be it. So definitely, I know my dad many years ago was pushed out of the like bigger community around him and he's still not accepted into it. My family is not, like there are many things that happen because of it. Like we don't, um, people won't come over to my house, to my childhood house because of they don't want their kids to be influenced by my dad's beliefs. That's so interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but I guess being a member of the Lubavitch community comes with a set of beliefs that might look a little bit different to secular Judaism. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like what your dad believed in added another layer to that. Mm -hmm. You talked about sets of rules before Yehudas. I'm wondering what set of rules applied to this belief system and what they looked like in practice in your home. Sure, so I'll bring out the rules that were, or the traditions that were different because of this particular belief. Um, The first one that comes to mind is how we pray. We usually pray towards, um, like, I know that in some religions people pray towards an icon or something like that. Um, In Judaism, we don't pray towards anything because we don't want anybody to think that we're praying towards an idol or praying towards a form that's meant to represent God because that's considered not allowed according to Judaism or Orthodox Judaism. And in my, like in the synagogue that my dad opened up, there was a picture of the Lubavitcher Rebbe and we were all supposed to pray towards him. And so that was something that was very different, very almost like against the foundations of what, you know, I was taught in the school that I went to when I was younger. So you, yeah, you, you're talking about this set of rules that your dad had that maybe set you apart from the rest of the community. How did that fit into your education and the school that you went to growing up? That's a great question. Um, so for the first 11 years, or until I was 11 years old, I went to a really wonderful school in Milwaukee where we, t- we were taught um, you know, half Jewish subjects, like religious subjects, and half regular secular subjects. And when I was 11 years old, uh, my dad was reading one of the texts that were written by the Lubavitch Rebbe, who, you know, he followed everything that he said very, very, very strictly. And my father read that the Lubavitch Rebbe said that girls shouldn't learn, or children shouldn't learn secular subjects until they're, 
I don't remember what the ages mentioned, but I think it was 8, 9, 11, 12, or even older. So that summer, my dad, first he started us with going to school just half a day, and then the school made a new rule saying that kids, you know, students have to attend the full day, so he pulled us out of school completely, and we started being homeschooled. And this was to avoid learning any, like, I don't know what you'd call them in Australia, but I always refer to them as secular subjects. Do you mean like maths and science and things like that? Exactly. So does that mean that when you transitioned to homeschooling, you were only learning subjects in the context of Judaism and nothing outside of that? Exactly. Yeah, wow. And obviously we learned some, like I learned how to cook and, you know, through cooking you learn some math and fractions, but there was no form. And I read a ton. I read so, so, so much. So I got a good... Um, English education and my grammar is okay (laughs) but there was no formal study and you know there were no levels to pass and when I got to university I realized how far behind I was on those like essential subjects that we usually learn. And doing homeschooling would have been interesting for you too because of the shape of your family which we'll talk about later in the show. Do, Do you still identify with Judaism as an adult? I love Judaism and I'm so proud to be Jewish and I think that it's always going to be a big part of me. I don't have it on today, but I usually wear a Jewish star. I think it's such a beautiful, wonderful, there's so many great traditions that, I, that came out of it, um, but I don't ever see myself going back to those rules, even though so many people, you know, family members and people from my past always tell me that I'm gonna come back. I'm like, I got my fill. <laughs> Yehudas, what's the first song you've chosen to play on the show today? Um, I'm going to play Shalom Aleichem, which is a traditional Friday night song that we usually sing with the family. You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5. This show is out of the box. That song was chosen by my guest on the show today, Yehudas Milstein, who just before was talking about her dad having come from Russia. I want to go back to your dad's parents because his mother played a pretty big role in your life, didn't she? Oh, that's so... I love that you bring up my grandmother because she actually... One of the places that I thought of her most when I was traveling was in Brussels, where I am now. Uh, my grandmother was the chief civil engineer of Moscow, and oh my God, she loves everything beautiful, everything interesting. She loves people, she loves traveling, she loves good things. Um, whenever she'd come visit us in Milwaukee, she'd come twice a year, and almost always she'd take us on a trip, even if it was you know, to neighboring Chicago, or we'd fly to Portland, Oregon, or just go somewhere with her. and travel and see things and she tells stories she teaches us how like, i remember one time she sat me down and taught me how this like leather chair was made <laughs> so even if we didn't see her very often she was very much um, influential because i kind of looked up to her and i saw her as somebody who was i wanted to be like her i wanted to wear the dresses that she wore i wanted to have the friends she had i wanted to travel like she did mm. And, and what about your mom's parents? Were they very involved when you were growing up as well? So my mother's father passed away when she was young, but my mother's mother 
She was my best friend. I, for years, maybe eight years straight, I spoke to her on the phone every single day. I'd call her, yeah. Um, she was in Seattle, which is like across the country for us. And, you know, I'd call her on the phone. We'd talk about the weather and we'd talk about my siblings and she'd teach me how to cook something that, you know, I loved that she made. And I'd visit her maybe once every year, once every year and a half. But she was just a really, because I was homeschooled, I didn't have any friends besides for my siblings. And she was somebody else. She was somebody who I could, I, I don't remember ever complaining to her or, you know, not telling her things that were not going right in my life. Um, but she was always there as somebody I could just call and talk about something different, be somewhere else with. Yeah, so two amazing grandmothers playing this huge role in your life. I find that so interesting that you can make that differentiation between, you know, like regular schooling in a regular classroom and your experience homeschooling with just your siblings because there's enough of you that it might look like a regular classroom. Tell me about your family and the size of it, Yehudas. So my mom has 12 girls and three boys. <laughs> so there's 15 of us all together. And yes, they're the same parents. And the, ol- the only twins we have are the, are the last two. And they're all, I'm the second oldest. So they're all little and delightful. And I love them miss- and miss them very much. And, you know, back when I was a kid, they were my friends and they were super annoying and I hated being with them, but I also played all of my favorite games with them. And now I talk to them almost every day. You know, they video call me, hey, do you like my outfit? Hey, what should I tell this girl that I'm going on a date on? <laughs> and, and so being the second to eldest, does that mean that you play a role in, you know, raising your siblings as well and being the grown up in the family? Um, so when I was a kid, um, I don't think I've ever spoken about this with my mom, but I felt very much like I'd taken a half mom role. Um, my mom, with so many kids, she was busy doing so many other things. I don't know, millions and millions of things that a mom has to do, like scheduling appointments and taking us there. And I was, for a couple, quite a few years, I'd be putting my siblings to sleep every night, and I was teaching them in homeschool. The way that our homeschool was structured was that every morning we'd start at 9 or 9.30, and I'd teach my siblings until 3 or 3.30, and then I'd go um, to the synagogue where the computers were, and I'd prepare for the next day, like their lessons. And then I'd come home, make them dinner, and put them to sleep. Wow. That's remarkable that you, yeah, were working as a teacher at such a young age. And I guess teaching comes back into your life as a career trajectory later as well. I want to jump into a song now, Yehudas. What's the next one you've picked for today? Um, This is a song that we sang a lot at home, or because we didn't grow up with regular, like, pop music or music that was on the radio. We only grew up with religious songs. This was one of the songs that we sang and it speaks about just yearning and wanting God and wanting to be with God. The name of it is Tzamalacha Nafshi.
You're listening to FBI Radio 94.5 DAB, or if you're streaming via the website or the podcast, that song was chosen by my guest on Out of the Box, Yehudas Milstein. And just before we played that, we were talking about education and the role that you played in the education of all of your siblings. I want to talk about your education now. Obviously, it was impacted when you were growing up by your family's religious beliefs, but eventually you would go on to study at college. What made you want to do that? There were so many different things that convinced me or encouraged me to go to college. And it started with when I was a child. I lived two blocks away from a university campus. And even though my mom would always comment on how all the students did was drink all day and how do they even graduate. Um, I always saw it as, what are they doing in those buildings? (laughs) I wanted to know, I wanted to be big like them and wear a backpack and then go party at night. And I also had a really wonderful neighbor, Gloria, I called her Goldie. Um, She was a teacher and I'd see her, she was around 70 years old, she was another very good friend of mine. I'd see her maybe once or twice a week. Um, and as we'd sit and chat at her house, she'd, every time I was with her, she'd ask me, so what do you want to be when you grow up? Or what are you going to study? Or what do you think about college? Or she'd tell me about her own experiences. She was in her 70s and she was going to school for art or going to school to, you know, for any other subject that was capturing her attention. So having those like little thoughts in my mind or implanted in my mind drove me to want it and when I was around 18 or 19 I started thinking about it seriously but it was very scary I was going to say that it was a bit scary but it wasn't it was really like what it's finally time to do this thing that I thought I might do why am I doing it I knew I wanted to do it actually I knew that I wanted to just learn everything that I had missed for so many years I wanted to be able to multiply I wanted to be able to understand why it rained outside just simple things I didn't get about life and I always ask questions and in a way I knew that college was going to answer them but I wanted to try I wanted to see what it would give me so one I was in Boston I was studying there, I was sorry, I wasn't studying there, I was teaching there um, at, a school, at a private school, and I think it was in February, it was one, February, one Saturday night that I went to the Story Slam. Um, a Story Slam is where you come and you s- might get chosen to say a five minute story in front of an audience, and, they, and then the, the audience votes and you win a prize at the end. So the woman who was you know, taking tickets at the front, she convinced me to say a story. I got on stage, I said a story. It was my first time on stage. I felt so high. I felt that adrenaline rush of everybody looking at me and me just sharing something. So on my way back from the story slam, I was, I was just, I don't know, I was on a high. I was super excited. I was so happy that my Uber driver, as soon as I got into the car, I think he must have felt that energy because without me telling him anything, he kind of turned around and looked at me and he said, hey, I don't know you, but I know that you're going to do great things. And I know that whatever you want to do, you're going to, <laughs> you're going to be able to accomplish it. And like, like, don't let yourself stop yourself. So I spoke with him for 15 minutes. He told me about how he's a cook and what he does. And I went home or, and I applied to college. 
So after that, it was easy. You know, once two weeks later, I got my acceptance letter. It was a community college, so it was pretty easy. Amazing. And you said that this was in Boston. Is that where the community college you were attending was as well? I was actually in Boston. Just I wanted to give myself a year to decide whether I was going to keep Judaism or how much I'm going to keep Judaism in my life because it was I was always in environments where I had to do it. You know, I was in school, I was at home. And I wanted to put myself in a place where I was choosing to go and I just try to learn and try to see and try to like listen to myself and hear if it was the right thing for me to do. So I was in Boston, I was teaching at a Jewish school, I was living in a Jewish community and I told myself that I'd give myself until the end of the school year um, to decide whether I'd stay in the Jewish community. So in February during this, like what, during the time when I went um, to the Story Slam, I had already decided that it wasn't for me and I wanted to move on. And I wanted to go to college. I was trying to apply, but it was just, it was overwhelming. I didn't know, you know, I heard stories of it being twenty, thirty, forty thousand dollars $40,000 a year. I didn't know what my options were, but I knew there had to be. If everybody in America goes to college, obviously I can too. Um, there were many people along the way who helped me, like my financial advisor and at the college and my mom and just people along the way who made it possible. So that's, and after that I moved to New York and actually went to college. Was your dad very supportive of, of you pursuing education in this way? Not particularly. At that point I wasn't at home, so I avoided talking with him about it. I knew what his beliefs were, I knew what he wanted for me. He wanted me to be a teacher, he wanted me to you know, get married and have a similar community as he did. And so I, I don't ever remember him being against it when I was in this process. Besides, well, I guess he didn't, wasn't very supportive of my mom helping me. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't really something that we spoke about. When you were studying at college, what were you studying? What were you thinking of becoming after you finished? So I've always been interested in education and not just interested, it's always been such a part oh, of me. Oh, you've been a teacher since you were six. <laughs> exactly. I've been teaching or working at summer camps and I really, I love being in that type of environment. I love working with kids and seeing that they are able to absorb things, that they ask questions, that they grow, that they love you. There's just, there's a really good spirit of working um, in education, but it was also the only thing I've ever done in my entire life. So when I went to college, I started with um, taking some classes in education, and then I decided to just go for liberal arts, like study everything, take psychology and biology and every class that I wanted, uh, and then decide. For the next part of the show, I do want to talk about what you went on to do after college. But first, let's jump into a song. What have you picked? So I've chosen Mumbaratare by Grupo Extra. When I was going to college the next year, um, it was a song that I danced to all the time. And I don't know, it's just something that brings up so many smiles. And I, I, every time I hear it, I want to dance.
That song was called Member Archery and you heard it right here on FBI Radio 94.5. My name is Mia Hull. I am joined by Yehudis Milstein on Out of the Box. Yehudis came to us as the manager of a band called Moonage Hookers. But before we get to your job as the manager, you had a different career trajectory. Tell me about that. So I love how it started. I was teaching in New York. I was 19. I was working at a private preschool and I really wanted to get out of the classroom. I love my students. I still sometimes like chat with their parents years later. And I don't know, I just wanted to, I wanted an office job. I know it's weird to dream of an office job, but when I've never had one and it was something that I was never supposed to do, I really wanted to try it out. So just as I had decided that I was gonna leave the classroom, I saw that this one YouTube celebrity who I loved and followed, um, he was looking for an executive assistant. So I thought, okay, I know that there's um, this job available. I know that I have no background for it, but let me try. So I created a BuzzFeed post, 10 reasons why I'm the one, and I sent it to this YouTube celebrity, Mayor Kay. Um, He loved it. (laughs) There were very good reasons on there of why I should work with him in the end. Can you tell me some of the reasons that you put in there? Oh my God, I remember one of them was that I love, I I put a picture of me on a boat with a bunch of random people in, where was that, Um, Puerto Rico. And I just wrote how the same way that he loves connecting with people and being with people, I love it too. (laughs) And look, I have random friends around the world. (laughs) Or that I've been stalking him since I was a kid and I showed him that we've been friends on Facebook for many years, even before he's been famous. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, inappropriate things like that, but hey, it works. Yeah, I'm glad that that worked out for you. That really could have gone a different way. Right. <laughs> what happened next? So I wasn't the one. What he wanted and what I wanted was different. So, but he did love what I had to offer. So he recommended me to his media company that he was working with, who then, I remember two days after our last conversation of like, okay, I don't think it's going to work out. I got an email from them and it, they just said, hey, you know, we loved your BuzzFeed post, would you come in for an interview? And that email brought so much good in my life. It brought me so much freedom. It brought me so many good people. I started working with this marketing company for supermarkets and that gave me, I never went to school for marketing, but everything that I, they gave me all the basics and the foundations and then I continued with online courses and just putting things into practice. And with that job, you ended up in Los Angeles. Tell me about that. How did it take you there? That's a great question. So (laughs) after I finished college in New York, I was kind of lost, didn't really know where I was going next. I hadn't graduated with a degree that would give me a job and I already had one. I already had one that I felt that I can grow in and I could explore either, you know, opportunities at that company or somewhere else. So one Saturday morning, I bought a ticket to Los Angeles. On Monday, I told my boss that I was leaving. He told me that I could continue working remotely. So on Tuesday, I bought a ticket from Los Angeles to Paris. And the reason why I bought a ticket to Paris was because it was the cheapest place to leave to from Los Angeles at that time. That was taking me outside of North America. On the note of leaving North America, I think it's the perfect time to jump into the next song that you've picked. It's by Mr. Worldwide. Tell me about this one. International Love. So my friend Dina introduced it to me 
many years ago, and I turn it on every time that I just, I don't have another song to turn on, I want to feel something good. I turn it on, I dance, I video call her, and we sing together. I would love to be a fly on the wall for one of those calls. <laughs> and yeah, we'll jump into the song right now on FBI Radio 94.5. It is International Love. By Pitbull. In Lebanon, yeah, the women are bomb. And in Greece, you guessed it, the women are sweet. Been all around the world, but I ain't gonna lie. There's nothing like my name is heat. You got it. artist you wouldn't often hear on this station you are listening to fbi radio 94.5 it was pitbull and international love as chosen by my guest on out of the box yehudas milstein who chose that in reference to being an international person she joins me right now from (laughs) brussels you've moved around a bit before landing in brussels yehudas where did you go when you left la i went from los angeles to Toronto, Alaska, Seattle, Milwaukee, a bunch of places, spent three months traveling North America saying goodbye to everybody. I guess I knew that I was moving for good and it wasn't just an extended trip. And then I went back to Los Angeles and took my flight to Paris. And three days into my being Paris, after I'd seen the Eiffel Tower and had breakfast, 45 euro breakfast by the way, on Champs Elysees. <laughs> I met the guy who is part of the band that I now manage. How did you meet? I was on a dating app and it was one Friday night. (laughs) I was feeling a bit like I wanted to talk to somebody, I just wanted to get out. And I knew that I had traveled before and I was traveling for a few months. I knew that, you know, with traveling comes a bit of loneliness and it's not a bad or good thing, it's just part of it. So I was trying to both embrace it and also think, okay, I'm not going to stay in this position for a while. Let me see who I can meet, who I can talk to, who I can connect with. So I was just scrolling through this dating app, um, saw his face. He looked like a, someone that I could chat with and talk with. Sent him a message on Instagram, kind of forced him into a date. Yeah. <laughs> he was very shy at first. And well, at first he thought it was a scam because of my very direct message, like, hey, I saw you on the sap, let's meet. Yeah. And then we met three days later. And Tuesday, so this was on Monday. On Tuesday, the day after, I met his band and I spent two or three hour practice with them, just listening to them play. Oh my God, I remember leaving that practice thinking that this band makes me want to do things. Like that's, I don't know if it was because I was in a studio listening to rock music really loud in this tiny room, or was it their the actual, like vibes that they were giving, but something about them said, hey, we're here to make a difference, we're here to change, we're here to make people feel something. And, and I fell in love with them very quickly, even if it was two years later, it was only two years later that I became their band manager. When you say you fell in love, do you mean the band or with Nathan? <laughs> so it took me a little longer to fall in love with Nathan. I left for a bit, for a month, and then I came back. and. I remember the night I fell in love with him. I remember he, I had come back just for, just for a visit. <laughs> and he had a concert. I was watching him on stage. And I was very like aware of the fact that everybody in this 
room in this little concert hall was not like did not speak any English. I couldn't connect with. The only thing I had to do there was really connect with the music and listen to the music and see what was going to happen on stage. And I remember, I don't remember what song he was playing, but at some point I was watching him. And I, I hope that somebody Googles a video of Nathan playing because when Nathan plays, he makes love to his guitar. Like he just feels the music that he plays. And I remember watching that and thinking that I don't know who this guy is, I don't know why the hell he loves me, but I'm gonna stay with him forever. And that's exactly what I told him that night. <laughs> and now you're living together in Brussels. Yep, we just yeah. moved here with the band. We're here to grow and connect with musicians and start playing more gigs and try to get out of the COVID funk. Yeah, well, I, I guess that leads perfectly into my next line of questioning because you just, the, the way we discovered you was through an email to FBI Radio with uh, Moona Chooker's video clip and some information about the band and you were writing as the manager. So with your manager hat on, what does the future of the band look like and is there something exciting in the works that listeners might get to look forward to? So we're coming out with a new EP in January. I'm very excited about it. It's very different than what they've ever come out with. Um, it was created actually during the month, during the time that I emailed the produ your executive producer um, about us. So we spent a month in a house in central France, a little house, giant yard, playing music 14 to 16 hours a day and just playing and composing and thinking and creating. And there's something really, I, I know I'm their manager, I know I'm biased, but I also know that I've seen the reactions of people. I've seen how people react to when they hear the story of the songs, when they hear the music, and there's something beautiful, there's something impactful in all their songs. Um, the new EP describes this journey of a person who goes from like being completely overwhelmed by all the terrible things in the world to realizing that he can find his peace and he can share his peace and he could find the good within the world. And every song is its own mini journey. So I'm really excited for people to hear it. Um, and then in terms of the band itself, we're hoping to travel more and play more gigs and just make people feel, get people to ask questions. You know, that video that you mentioned in the beginning of this um, show where like there's a man running down the street naked. So, it's a man, he starts fully dressed, and as he's running, he's taking off one piece of clothing at a time. So I've seen different people take their own um, understandings away from it. What I understand from it, and what I think the song was written about, was just, we're covered in so much that, like bullshit, in so much that it doesn't make sense, that doesn't fit us. It kind of goes in line with my, the reason why marketing doesn't sit too well with me. It's all fake, it's all, it's the stuff that we put on, you know, the suit that we put on just to look good, just to fit in. And this guy is done. So he's taking it all off, he's taking it all off until he's naked, he's himself, and he runs off. We don't know where he goes. Yeah. 
I'll put a link to that video on the programs page in fbiradio.com. So if anyone wants to see someone be free or just see a bum, that's um, <laughs> you can see it. You just I find that so funny that you were saying, oh, I'm biased because I'm the manager of the band and, you know, not biased because you're <laughs> the partner of one of the band members. You've talked about the future of Moondi Chookers. I want to talk about your future. What does it look like for you? Where do you want to go? That's kind of a scary question. I don't ask myself that often. I see myself just going. I've always taken life as I'm going to be happy right now. I'm going to do whatever I can to be happy right now. And as opportunities come up, I take them or I you know, I don't take them and it brings me somewhere else. So I don't have any concrete plans. This is what I want to do. I do know that, and my astrologer, my astrologer agrees with me that I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to meet people. I'm going to see people. I hope that I could impact people the way that people have made an impact on me. But I don't really particularly care how I'm going to do that, whether it's with the band or through marketing or maybe even with teaching. I, I just want to feel like I've done something in the world. And you'll probably make an impact on some people by appearing as a guest on Out of the Box. Thank you so much for joining me today, Yehuda Smilstein. It's been so nice chatting to you. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so blessed for this opportunity and thank you. You've chosen a song by Moonage Hookers to end the show on. Tell me about this one. So I guess the title says it all. It's Endless Trip. Amazing. And yeah, I'll put links up for the band on fbiradio.com on the programs page if you do want to find any information about them or, you know, get ready for the forthcoming EP, which drops in January. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can listen back to the show on the website as well, if you like, or via the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts. Big shout out to my lovely producer, Emma Higgins and Glenn for getting this episode together and stick around. Lil Scott is right around the corner for lunch. Yeah,